feel like we could go to war with that song. What a great thing to start us today. A few years ago, uh, Rachel and I went to New York City to celebrate our anniversary, and uh, both of us had been to New York before on several occasions, but never together. So we went and saw the sights and the sounds that New York has, but we also did something that's near and dear to my heart. We went on a food tour of the city, and uh, we were in Greenwich Village. We had this delicious, I still remember it, New York City-style pizza, this incredible cannoli. Uh, this, uh, we tried different kinds of cheeses, all kinds of different unique uh, dishes that they made. And at the same time, we learned about the city, so it was educational as well. But I told Rachel before we went on the tour, I said, now, Rachel, I know we've been married for a while, uh, but I don't know if you know this about me, but when I go on a tour, I like to get as close as possible to the tour guide because I want to know, I want to hear everything they're saying. And so um, I think Rachel thinks I already walk a little bit too fast. And uh, I, I just wanted to warn her up front, I still love her dearly, but when she looks around for me, I'll be near the tour guide, because that's where I like to be. And uh, if she loved me, she'd walk a little faster, and uh, I think she did. But uh, So today, I want to serve as a tour guide for you. And I know I have a tendency to talk fast, so I will do my best to pace myself. But I want to take you on a tour um, to see the very earliest parts of the church. And... Um, we at First Baptist Columbia have a 200-year history, but we are part of a universal church with a 2,000-year history. And so we want to go all the way back. And while we're here, we're going to be asking the question, a lot of us like to say, well, you need to come to my church or talk about their church. Uh, but whose church is it anyways? That's what we're going to be asking today. So we're going to travel back a couple thousand years where the uh, world looks very different. There's no United States of America. Uh, modern civilization as we know it does not exist. Um, there's the strong man in the world is uh, Caesar, and the Roman Empire is in control of just about everything. There are no Christian traditions. There's no Christian denominations. There's no recorded gospels or epistles for us to read. Israel looks very different. It's an occupied land by the Romans, and the Jewish spiritual leaders are proud, self-serving, and they're corrupt people. And the word church that we're so used to hearing in our culture is not really used in any sort of frequency uh, during this period of time. Um, and it's at this time and in this context that the church as we know it begins. Now the first mention of the church in the New Testament is not by Paul in one of his epistles, it's not in one of Peter's speeches, but it's by Jesus himself in an interaction that he has with his disciples. Now, Matthew captures this perfectly for us today. So we are going to look in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to be reading to you from verses 13 through 18. And what we know has happened is Jesus has already interacted with Pharisees and Sadducees who have uh, asked him to perform a miracle. He responds to him, but ultimately he and the disciples hop in a boat and uh, they kind of retreat to the north end. So let me read to you Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In the passage, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ and then Jesus declares the future of his church. Now there are plenty of books out there that you could read about the church, but I thought it's nice for us to look at the primary reference, which is right here. Jesus' first recorded use of the word church might offer insight. And in order to understand the church, we must understand Jesus and what he says about the church. So why is that? Well, the church depends on who Jesus is. There is no church without Jesus. So we're going to look at these six verses uh, to better understand who Jesus is and what he says about the church in about three different points. First, we see that the church depends on who Jesus is, not on hearsay. Verse 13 indicates that Jesus is, uh, and his disciples found their way in Caesarea Philippi. This is an area about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. I don't know that the area is that important. We know it's a pagan region, but it's there that Jesus gathers around his disciples and he starts to pose this question to them. And the way that it's written, it sounds like he asked it and asked it until he got response. Maybe several of them responded. And he said, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, we understand this but, uh, because we recognize what this means in the Scripture. But Jesus was uh, substituting the personal pronoun I with this, this uh, idea of the Son of Man. So he says, who do you say that I am? He's referring to himself. Now, the phrase Son of Man is used throughout the Scriptures. And if you look in the Old Testament, it's used in various ways. But inevitably... It's about just man, mere uh, mortal man in general. That's it. But when you turn to the New Testament, son of man is not used in a general way anymore. It's always, always referring to a particular unique person, which is Jesus. So why, how did that happen? Why is that? Well, you're all familiar with the prophet Daniel. Daniel is uh, one of the Old Testament prophets, the one who was thrown to the den of lions. And um, he was given a gift like Joseph. He could interpret dreams, but he also had these grand prophetic revelations. And in one of those, in Daniel 7, verse 13, uh, Daniel speaks these words. He said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Well, this seems to be the root for our understanding of who the Son of Man is, that it's deity, that it's Jesus. And Jesus refers to himself this way. Now, he could have said, uh, uh, you know, who do you say that the Messiah is and referred to himself? But that word Messiah was kind of a loaded word in first century, uh, and to a first century Jewish listener. And so they probably would have thought, well, you know, some sort of revolutionary or a political leader. They were looking for somebody to come in and upturn what was happening, overturn uh, the things that were happening in Israel. And they wanted a Jewish ruler on David's throne. So Jesus steered clear of that word and used this phrase, the Son of Man, almost to give the people time to understand who he was, to reveal over a period of time who he was. 
So he says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And the consensus we get among all the listeners, the people that heard from Jesus, is that he was some sort of spiritual leader or maybe a teacher or a prophet. They say, uh, some of you say you're like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. Some of them even thought that maybe he was Elijah or a resurrected John the Baptist or something like that. But although the people believed that Jesus was speaking with authority, they didn't think he was God. That's the key point here. The bottom line is that there were a lot of opinions about Jesus. Now, people knew who he was, but they all kind of developed their own opinion about him. Just like people do the same thing today. If you were to poll the people, if you were to poll the people, some in the church, some outside the church, you'd get a lot of different answers about who Jesus is. People see him as kind of like a great teacher. You know, he uh, uh, could speak truth in a real clear way. He had great insights, clear wisdom. Jesus was a good teacher. Some saw Jesus simply as some great miracle worker, somebody who had tapped into some sort of force and used it for good. Others believe that uh, maybe he was just a great role model. Some believed he was just pure fiction. There's a lot of opinions even today about who Jesus is. We also know there are a lot of different opinions about the church. Uh, David Kinneman, he's a researcher with the Barna Group, and he says based on research, there's one primary characteristic that non-Christians associate with Christians and the church, which is being judgmental. When you poll people who are non-Christians or not at church attenders and you say, what do you think of the church or what do you think of Christians? The first phrase they say is judgmental. Now you may be okay with that, but Jesus is not. Not even close to what he said his followers would be known for. In John 13, 35, Jesus says this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said the church is to be characterized by love. Not being judgmental. There will always be various opinions about Christians and the church. Clearly, we're not defined by hearsay about the church. But if the perception is close to reality, we better ask ourselves, are we missing something? Are we missing what Christ has called us to as the church? So Jesus asks what people are saying about him. Um, and, you know, I'm not always interested in knowing what people think about me, you know. Uh, I, I don't know that I want to hear their opinion of me every single time. But I'm learning now as pastor that people have a lot of opinions, you know, about who Wes should be and what a pastor does. And, of course, I already feel a lot, a lot of pressure following in the footsteps of my predecessor and a great spiritual mentor in my life, um, Dr. Wendell Eastep. He was a phenomenal preacher, or is a phenomenal preacher. He's a phenomenal visionary. And so I feel pressure of that. But there are some other things that people evidently have gotten used to with him as uh, the pastor. Um, I walked into Wednesday night dinner this past week, and uh, before I even got through the doors, a lady stopped me and said, you know, I'm used to my pastor on Wednesday night when he sees me to give me a kiss. And I thought, <laughs> a lot of pressure here, a lot of pressure on being the pastor. And uh, Leo said uh, that uh, if, you know, if you want to be like the pastor, we're used to him walking around with a cone of ice cream and sitting down and talking to us on Wednesday nights. And so I didn't have a cone of ice cream. I didn't know what to do. But even my family puts pressure on me as uh, the next pastor. My son, Andrew, who's out here, Andrew um, said to me, Dad, I'm really glad that you're the pastor. I know I've heard you preach before, but I don't remember what you had to say. So <laughs> I'm hoping that I'll be a little bit more memorable um, now that I'm up here. But 
Jesus is not really concerned with what the people say, uh, thought about him. I mean, he's interested to hear what the disciples say, but it's not like he's testing the waters. He's not putting his fingers to the pulse to say, are, are, we, are we ready to mount a political campaign? You know, are, are, are we doing the things right? That's not what he's doing. He's actually driving at another point that was much more personal. So hearsay does not define us as Christians. It doesn't define the church. But it does give us an evaluation about what people perceive from our lives and from the activities of our church. Once again, the researcher David Kinneman, he wrote, among young people outside the church, 84% say they personally know at least one committed Christian. Yet just 15% thought the lifestyles of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. He writes, this gap speaks volumes. Did you catch that? 84%, this is research, it's not too old, but 84% of non-churchgoers or non-Christians say they personally do know a Christian. But only 15% of those say, and they live in a recognizable way as living a different life. In other words, most of them just blend in with everybody else. People are watching. They're watching you, not just those people. They're watching you. Hearsay will abound, but as much as it depends on you and me, as followers of Jesus, can we live in a way that would give a credible witness for, the, for Christ and for the church? I mean, I think that's a great application for us. We need to live in a way so that they don't think judgmental, they think loving, right? Because I think that's a great place to start, is to start with love. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not to be politically correct in the way that we speak about sin or the way we speak about Jesus, or salvation, or hell. But we are called to be radically different in the way that we love. And you and I have a great opportunity to love our neighbors, to love those in our community uh, with words, but also with deeds, right? Wouldn't it be great if when people noticed folks from First Baptist Church, they would say, man, they're so loving. They're so sacrificial. They live in a distinguishable way. I can tell they're following something different than me. Well, Jesus asked, who do they say that I am? But there's a much more personal question that he gets to. So the church depends on who Jesus is. So it matters who you say he is. Look at verse 15 here. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? So more than the crowds or even um, other followers that maybe weren't in the, room, uh, the space at that time, Jesus wanted to know, who do you say that I am? And he asked this to the whole group, right? So we assume the 12 are there, maybe more. But there was only one verbalized single response, and it came from Simon Peter. He asked all of them, but there's no way to think or no reason to think that they disagreed with Simon Peter. He just was the spokesperson. He's the one that spoke up. Now, we all know Simon Peter. We're familiar with him. Uh, he was just a, uh, he was really radical in his willingness to serve Jesus and to follow him. We know that uh, he didn't get it right every time, though. He did walk out on the water, but it wasn't long before he took his eyes off the master and saw the waves, right? Uh, he was willing to protect Jesus when the arresting party came into the Garden of Gethsemane, but then he was also quick to deny him. 
So he didn't always get it right. But it's this Peter who kind of has this shaky faith that speaks up whenever Jesus poses this question. And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think Jesus was ready at this moment for his disciples to step across the line. To clearly define what they believed about Jesus. In other words, he's not just a rabbi anymore. He's not just a teacher that we're following. He's not just some miracle worker or a great role model. But Jesus is looking for them to say, no, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's coming. And Peter did it with flying colors. And this is the first time in the book of Matthew that you will find anyone in any of Jesus' audiences unambiguously acknowledging Jesus as the Christ. It was Simon Peter. Well, Christianity is a personal faith. And many articulate the fact that they are born into a Christian family or they come from a Christian uh, home. But you know, being in a Christian family doesn't make us a Christian. Having Christian parents or grandparents don't make us Christian. Just as Peter being in the midst of the disciples and following Jesus didn't make him a Christian. It was, who do you say that I am? Not your parents, not these guys. Who do you say that I am? Well, we have some college students who are back, and I'm thrilled to see y'all. I came here as a college student as well. And um, I can also remember, I don't know if there's any freshmen here, but I remember my first weekend in Columbia as a college student um, at Carolina. And I remember going to my first Carolina football game as a USC student. I put on the garnet black. I went down to williams Bryce Stadium, and I cheered on the Gamecocks as we beat Ball State 38-20. to 20. It was a glorious thing. <laughs> then the Gamecocks lost every other game that year, <laughs> home and away. Um, now, although I could blend in as a Carolina fan, I wore garnet black. I knew the, uh, the, you know, the, the cheers. I knew how to clap to the fight song, all those things. I actually used to have a deeper loyalty. Now, I know the, the operative word here is used to, okay? I'm a graduate. I'm a, all in. But I used to. And in 1998, South Carolina won one game and lost the rest. But the University of Tennessee won every game. They went on to win the national championship that year. And in fact, as a USC student who would wear garnet black during the week, I went to the SEC championship painted orange and white and sang along to Rocky Top, okay? <laughs> Although I looked like a Carolina fan and I was a Carolina student, if somebody asked me, Wes, who do you say is your favorite team? It depended on where I was, right? <laughs> I had to say was Tennessee. Now to clear the air, that all changed. That all changed when I was a Carolina student. We won our second game. It was two years later. We beat New Mexico State and I've been all in ever since then. But just because you're here today, you're at church, you've set aside time this Sunday, that doesn't make you a Christ follower. So let me say to you, don't let this moment pass you by. Don't let it pass you by without answering the question. Can you hear the Holy Spirit speaking it to your heart today? Can you hear him there? Who do you say Jesus is? Whether you're in this room, whether you're joining us by television, you're streaming online, or maybe joining us uh, uh, through Facebook Live or something like that, right now, just ask the question and answer it. Who do you say Jesus is? Have you recognized Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God? Have you declared your belief in him 
as the only one who is able to forgive you of your sins and to give you hope of eternal life. Are you depending on someone else's faith today? Or is it personal for you? The movement, this movement, the church of following Jesus, depends on who he is. Therefore, it's critical who you say he is. And recognizing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, gives purpose and meaning to the church. Particularly what Jesus expects of his church. But the third point I see here is the church depends on who Jesus is. So we must know, what does he say about the church? Well, Peter's the one who answers this personal question about who he said he was. Jesus replies with a blessing. He says in verse 17, 18, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, you didn't did, uh, come up with an uh, intellectual deduction here. It wasn't scientific method, but God has given you this revelation. And then he says in verse 18, I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's as if Jesus is saying, since you told me who I am, I'm going to tell you who you are. Simon, son of John, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter's a nickname, of course, that Simon received before this. And Peter means rock. It's kind of like Dwayne Johnson, the rock, you know, that football player, wrestler, movie star guy, the rock. So Simon says, Simon, I mean, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, you are the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, there's some debate about this, okay? What is Jesus referencing when he says, this rock, I'm going to build my church on this rock? Is he speaking of the truth that Peter's just declared? On your declaration, I'm going to build my church. Or is he speaking of Peter? Well, let me just say to you, a plain reading clearly points to Peter being this rock, not the statement. Um, in the Greek, as Matthew would have written it, um, the word, it would have said, uh, you are uh, Petros, and on this Petra will I build my church. Um, in the Aramaic, the words that Jesus actually would have spoke, some argue that he would have said the exact same word, you are uh, Kepha, and on this Kepha will I build my church. You think, well, what's the big deal, Wes? Why are we hanging here? Well, there's a major theological position um, that's dependent on this verse. The Roman Catholic Church interprets this passage to mean that Peter was the first pope. And every successive pope until him has been acting in the authority that Peter had. The certain privileges and rights that are outlined in the next couple of verses and were added over the years. Well, you and I are Protestant for a reason. First Baptist Church is a Protestant church for a reason. And this is one of those reasons. We disagree with this position among other Catholic doctrines about, uh, based on biblical understanding. Peter is not set apart as the Pope here to be the ruling bishop over the church. Peter is one rock among uh, a quarry of rocks of disciples who also declare this same belief in Jesus. And he says, and on this bedrock of these living stones, that's what Peter calls them, living stones being built in the church, on these living stones will I build my church. Peter is not our bishop. He is the first among equals in the history of the church. But let's not get hung up here because we're here for a reason. Uh, we ventured here to, just, to talk about the church. This instance is the first time that the term church is being used in the New Testament. And the word simply means gathering or assembly. It was used in uh, several different ways. But Jesus clarifies what he's talking about here. 
He says, on this rock I will build my church. This church is the Jesus church. It's the Jesus gathering. It's the assembly of Jesus followers. He says, on this rock I will build my church. And, you know, we, we have all kinds of my, things that come in our mind when we hear church. We think buildings, steeples, the different ministries and activities, the way that we do church today. Clearly, that's not what they were thinking of. Jesus probably had it in mind when he, uh, when he said it. But by calling this my church, Jesus is placing himself right at the center of this community. The only way into this community is Jesus. The one we follow is Jesus. His name, his character, his person, uh, his principles are what this church needs to be about and in the way that we need to represent him. Chuck Swindoll points out four implications from the first four monosyllabic words of uh, this reference. First, I. He says, Jesus is the originator of the church. And he is. It's his idea. He came up with it. He protects it. He leads it. He alone is its head. That's why the gates of Hades will not prevail. It has nothing to do with you or me, but it has everything to do with him. So he says, I will. And this word will is a, a looks to the future. He doesn't say, I have or I am. He says, I will. And he's saying that there's going to come a moment, we know it's in Acts 2, when the church is born, and he's going to build his church then. And that's the third word, build. I will build. He doesn't say, I will establish. He talks about an ongoing process of building and growing and building and growing. That is what the church is supposed to be about. Building and growing in living stones, in people. Finally, he says, I will build my church. And he's affirming his ownership and authority. We've already stated Jesus is the head of the church. But I think there's great application for you and I today as we consider whose church is it? We ought to at least ask ourselves, is Christ the head of our local church? Does he have first place in our hearts? Does he have first place in our ministries? Does he dictate what we do with the calendar, with the budget, what we challenge the people to do? Is he the center of it? Is what we're doing about Jesus or have we drifted from that singular focus? And have we become about other things, possibly cultural things? What I think we need to understand is that you and I are parts of this church. We are the living stones being constructed into the building. So rather than saying, you know, what I think should change at the church is this. Or we ought to do what so-and-so is doing at their church. Or we need to bring back old such-and-such and put our preferences into play. We should ask, what does the Lord Jesus want with First Baptist Church of Columbia? What does he want? It's his church. How can we best serve him in our community and in our world? In fact, I want you to make that a serious matter of prayer. As the pastor of this church, I'm calling everybody who calls this place home. I'm calling us to a season of prayer for the next 30 days. I want to ask you, if you call this place home, to commit to pray every single day. You can pick out a time, but I'll suggest one. You can pick eight. It could be in the morning, in the evening, or both, or it can just have an eight in the time. Whatever. You pick a time, and you pray every single day for this church. In the bulletin today, there's some suggestions of some prayer requests. And I want you to pray for those every day for the next 30 days. Ultimately, what I want you to be doing is to ask, God, would you lead us? 
as we pursue your vision for this congregation. For the next 30 days, I'm going to call you to do that, and I'm going to join with you as well. Remember, there's a lot of opinions about the church, but the one that matters most is Jesus' opinion. The church depends on who Jesus is and what he says about this church. Uh, We know from the uh, first instance, the word is used in the New Testament, that Jesus calls the church his. Today, some of you in this room, or some of you watching by television or joining us online, you need to answer Jesus' question from the beginning in an unambiguous way. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you say Jesus is? Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus for salvation? Have you admitted that you're a sinner and repented and believed on Jesus as the only one who can forgive you and give you the hope of eternal life? Do you need to confess that belief in him today? Some of you need to take the step of church membership this morning. We'd love to have you as a part of this body of living stones being built into the congregation Christ wants us to be. And so today some of you might need to walk the aisle to join the church in that way. We can all commit to pray for our church every single day for the next 30 days. Some of you may need to follow in another way of serving him. Whatever it is, God is calling us to respond. So will you respond today? Our Heavenly Father, what a delight it is for us to gather together for worship. We do declare in this moment that as sinful men and women, we make so much of what we do about us whenever we recognize that you alone are the one to receive a glory and attention and be the one who determines everything about our lives, especially about this church. So Father, as we come now to a time of response, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. Help us to be responsive to you, Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. We're going to have an invitation. And remember, this is for all of us. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? Now, like, what is God calling you to do in our church? Some of you need to walk the aisle and make a decision for the Lord or join the church, whatever it may be. I'm going to invite everybody to stand. As the choir sings, I'm going to be down front. You respond.